You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. First Q&A panel on objectivism with Yaron Brook, Ankar Gatte, and Keith Lockage. Recorded as part of Ayn Rand Con Europe 2022. Without further delay, first question. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask, you know, in like an ideal society when people have complete freedom, how do you know that people would actually take into account their like long-term self-interest rather than you know, just being concerned with taking the last piece of cake on the table. Thank you. Um, how do we, well, I don't know in a sense, right? Because it has to be a choice. It has to be something that people actually engage in effort to do. It doesn't come automatically. Um, and it, it's going to require um, teaching them in, in some capacity, right? There has to be a cultural change where that is the norm. Otherwise, you wouldn't get freedom. So the, the thing is that these, we've seen what happens with freedom when they don't realize that they have to be, you know, and, and, then, and then their philosophy is altruistic, um, but this system is based on, 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 uh, on um, kind of an assumption of, of uh, self-interest, long-term self-interest, and what happens is that freedom goes away, right? Unfortunately, they don't change because the system is geared towards that. It's the ideas that have to change. So I think they have to go together. They have to acknowledge it. Now, how do I know they won't just be grabbing the cake? Because if they just grab the cake, they won't survive for very long. How long are you going to live? How long are you going to literally live, survive, if you just grab the cake? Not very long. Uh, so in order to survive, you need to think about things long term. In order to thrive, you should. So a system that was free, where everybody just grabbed the cake, would not be free for very long. Cheers. Or the pizza in Keith's cake. <laughs> I'm a cake, well, I'm not a cake guy. I'm not a pizza guy either. And, uh, yeah, go ahead, Uncle. I'll just say one, it, the historical evidence is, what, is that what Iran said is true. So the two periods in, let's put it in terms of Western civilization, that you get freedom are in ancient Greece and then into Rome and the Enlightenment. And they both have a conception that what morality is about is pursuing your interest, and particularly thinking of it long-term, what a whole life that's worth living amounts to. And that's what the Greeks are thinking about, and it's the birth of political freedom in the West, and it's what the Enlightenment thinkers are thinking about. And one of the ways they conceptualized it is you're pursuing your enlightened self-interest. But part of what that meant is you have to think long-term, and the pursuit of happiness, to use the Declaration of Independence, is not the pursuit of what I want the next minute or the next day. It's, it, 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 the reason it was put as a pursuit is it takes a lot to achieve a life, a life that, say, a Ben Franklin wanted to live. And for that, you, they realized, I need freedom. And I need the freedom from government coercion. So historically, that's what has happened. Hi. So. A couple of days ago, uh, I told Joran that I don't know anything about objectivism and he told me to come down here and learn. And uh, just listening to your talk about capitalism, I seem to have uh, found this contradiction in the fundamentals of the philosophy. And I, I want you to elaborate on this. So it seems to me that you advocate for capitalism to its greatest extent, which I would understand is anarcho-capitalism, but yet you keep talking about the role of government so I don't quite understand how it can exist. Um, and what is its role if it does exist in this objectivist hypothetical? 
And how is it subsidized? So there is no such thing as anarcho-capitalism. That's a contradiction in term. Capitalism involves government because capitalism involves the protection of individual rights and there's no way to protect individual rights without government. If you don't like the word government, change the word. I don't care. But the concept of an entity that has the monopoly over the use of retaliatory force and that um, helps define, uh, you know, the boundaries of property rights. Uh, what property rights are? We talked about intellectual property rights before, you know, like in the age of the Internet, what counts as property, what doesn't count. These are complicated issues that somebody has to define, and that's the role of government. Um, government is a necessary, uh, not a necessary evil, a necessary good. It's part of the system that is capitalism. You can't separate it out. So narco-capitalism is a contradiction in terms. Um, why do you need it? You need it because... You need to be able to objectify, you need to be able to, to, to place, uh, to, to make objective the use of force in self-defense. You, you can't have a society in which we all are pursuing justice on our own behalf and, and running around chasing criminals or chasing perceived criminals or who we think are criminals and where there's no a, a way in which to, objective, to turn that into an, an, an objective system. And the market can't do it because the market requires the absence of force in order to function. And civilization requires the absence of force in order to function. So first you have to extract force. Only then can markets evolve, markets function, and, and civilization uh, exist. Uh, so uh, government is a, an essential, necessary part of freedom, capitalism, um, and objectivism. And so it's not some latch-on thing uh, from, the, from the outside I, of course, there's a much longer explanation for why all that is necessary. But you need somebody to protect individual rights. Individual rights are not something to be traded in a marketplace. Yeah, I, I get all that and I completely agree. But what is its role? Like, where would you draw the line in terms of what reach protect, the government had? Protection uh, of individual rights. So what, what is that? Uh, uh, practically, police, military and a judiciary and, the, and you would include under the judiciary legislation function, which is responsible for things like helping define new, new, right, new property rights and, and boundaries and things like that. So, uh, so those would be, that's what the government would do. And, you, and you, the limit is not arbitrary. It's, it's where do you need to apply individual rights object. That's where the government steps. And just finally, if you don't mind, how would it be subsidized? Oh, the subsidy. Um, you know, Ayn Rand's answer to that was, we've got about 100 years to figure that out before it actually happens, so we'll manage. But, you know, my, I think she, in the essay, she, she, she gives the ultimate answer. She, she proposes a few, uh, a few things, but I think there's an essay in Capitalism Not Known to Deal where she deals with this question. Again, Capitalism Not Known to Deal, a book you should all read. But I think, I think it's easy. That is, I think it's voluntary, um, voluntary contributions, call it. Um, I think it's people writing checks because they want to have the police and the military. And how do you deal with free riders? I think you deal with free riders through social ostracism, that the right way, would. And you do, you, you, you know, the government will publish. It should publish anyway because it's transparent. How much everybody's given. And if you notice your neighbor hasn't given, you might ask him why. Maybe he's going through a crisis and can't this month. But if he's systematically not given to the police or to the military and you and, and there's no real good reason for why he's not, you might not want to deal with him. You might want to want to ostracize them. And that's, that's how you deal with free riders. But coercion should not be part of whatever the solution. 
Thank you very much. Nowadays, it'd be a big GoFundMe page. Go fund the government. <laughs> um, historically, Rand used two symbols oh, for capital. Wait, sorry, we're on this side. Yeah, we're yeah, switching sorry. sides here. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. It's just more on the academical side. Why is it that uh, the professors and the academia and the thinkers, so they often come up with the kind of explanation that, well, Ayn Rand, that's so shallow and that's not really a philosophical thinking platform and it's only for the rich white guys and so on. I mean, I haven't read Immanuel Kant in detail. I know enough that, you know, that's bad. I don't want to waste my time on that one. But I think that the philosophy of Ayn Rand is pretty complete. I mean, it offers answers to most of your life questions. So I kind of wonder why is it that people lambast it and say that, well, it's shallow, it's, it's, it's limited and it's not really a proper philosophy. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I'll, well, I think there's a variety of reasons. Here's two. So one is they're scared of it. So the and this is something Ayn Rand said that, that in interviews when she, I think this is a Donahue, Phil Donahue interview, where she was asked, like, people think you're daft, which means like crazy, stupid. And it, her answer was, no, they want you to think that. So they criticize in a, in a dismissive way. So they don't actually deal with her ideas or her argument. They say it's stupid, shallow, not sophisticated, not academic. In order to, for the audience to think, oh, okay, so I shouldn't even bother looking at this. I shouldn't even bother reading it. And that's because they're scared because they know that um, if people do read Atlas Shrugged or do read The Virtue of Selfishness, yeah, they get a different perspective and they start, might start asking questions. And there has been, like I've seen this in philosophy classes, other people have seen this. A professor start off with, okay, you can ask any question, but don't bring up Ayn Rand. Um, and it, part of it is, well, yeah, because I can't answer it. And so, and then I don't want to discuss this. I don't want other people to hear this stuff. So that's one of the answers. But another answer is, I mean, another aspect of the answer is that philosophy is a controversial subject. Part of what that means is a philosophy has a view of what philosophy is. So notice that Ayn Rand does not think that what is happening in the universities, universities at the time she was alive, what is happening in philosophy departments, she doesn't think of as its real philosophy. She so she has, in effect, the same attitude they have towards her. They think she's crazy, unsophisticated, um, dealing with things that aren't real. That's her attitude of the academic philosophy department at the time. And that's because there is a real disagreement about what philosophy is. And she's not the only thinker who was treated as, yeah, what you have to say is complete nonsense. It doesn't accord with anything that's going on in the universities today. And so David Hume, who's now a famous philosopher, his initial work, and he's like he's 24 or something when he writes the treatise of human nature, it's a massive thing. It has a bunch of new ideas and it's, and he views it like this, and because this is what has happened, is nobody would give it a hearing. Nobody in university would take it seriously. And, so, and that's, they were more in the kind of medieval perspective on philosophy. And they thought, like, this isn't real philosophy. Now it's viewed as, yeah, this is real philosophy. And what was happening in the universities at the time is not. And if we're successful, and more broadly, if Ayn Rand's successful in getting her ideas out, 
That's what will happen in 50, 100 years. They'll look, yeah, this is real philosophy, and what was going on in the time in the universities is not real philosophy. So, so it, it's an intellectual issue as well, but there also is a moral issue about their scale. Thank you. Yeah, so, sorry, historically, Rand used two symbols for capitalism, the dollar sign and the cigarette. <laughs> and now we have the mobile phone. Um, is, there, is there anything else that's, you know, in all that time period that you could use as a great symbol for capitalism? Or is that all we got? Well, I would use, so some of what I brought up in my talk, and I think it's important like, I agree completely with Iran's stress on the iPhone. But what I would also emphasize is heavy industry. The industry that is demonized, fossil fuels, energy, electricity, nuclear power. And that this, is, this was brought into existence because men were free and could plan long range. It's such, I mean, it's hard to, to imagine life without power. When people lose it for a day or two, it's like, Oh my God, nothing works. I can't power my fridge. I can't cook. I can't, we can't, we're boiling and if it's in the, in the summer or we're freezing if it's in the winter. And, so, and like that's a day or two. And people used to live without this all the time. And to stress that this is brought into existence by capitalism and this is what we would lose if we get rid of capitalism, I think it's really important to have that kind of symbolism associated with capitalism as well. And think about it. I mean, in, in Atlas, think of railroads, uh, you know, uh, it's metal, right? So there, there's, she's using multiple, you know, any human, in a sense, right? Any human achievement in, 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 a, in a marketplace kind of environment is, is, could be a symbol in that sense. But I think that the, the, the two, you know, the key is energy because it's so essential for the functioning of every other industry. Um, you know, and I'm a big finance guy, so I think financial markets, financial institutions, financial products, and that's what the dollar, I think, represents, is, is, is finance, capital, allocation of capital. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, it's about ideas. It's about, it's about innovation, ingenuity, and those. You're looking for a symbol for that and, and the freedom to do that. Isn't there a line in Atlas where she talks <clears throat> about... Uh... Renaissance of skyscrapers and oil derricks, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So Skyscrapers played a huge role for Ayn Rand in terms of a symbol of freedom and success and prosperity. Uh, I know that her knowledge of history contributed towards uh, advocacy of capitalism, but I was wondering how big a role, if any, did the knowledge of economics play? I mean, the role of history. Funnily enough, I think played a role primarily in the she says right in in her development of her ethics, more so in a sense than the development of her you know theory of politics, and that is because she said that she couldn't have completely understood the role of reason in man's life without seeing the the, the industrial revolution. And the role of reason played in the industrial revolution, and better, all the things Ankar just said, bettering the human condition, right? And it's it, it's arguably why Aristotle couldn't see the role of reason fully, is because he, he didn't have that concrete evidence of how reason could reshape the environment to to meet man's need. Uh, human reason does that. 
I mean, she obviously read a lot of economics. Uh, she read, we know she read Hazlitt, uh, Economic and One Essence. She read Mises' Human Action, which is big and, and, and is, is, is maybe the, the best book you can read if you're going to read economics. That, that, and it's not an easy book to read, but she read that. We've got Marginalia Comments, uh, where she, she's writing on the margins. She even read Do It to Serfdom, although that's not clearly an economics book. That's more of a political book. She didn't like it. Um, and so I think all of that played into her comprehensive understanding about kind of the world. And it's, it's all the evidence that inductively lead her to kind of both her ethical views and ultimately her political views. So she had that. That was a resource for her. Exactly. Can you draw lines? I don't think knowledge works that way. Thank you. Um, today we have the technology to um, edit the genome of an embryo, but edit them and the genome is highly interconnected. And if you edit one gene, it could have tremendous consequences in other genes and you don't really know the outcome. And even if you can sufficiently, uh, if you can edit one gene in one person and have a good outcome, it could create a very bad outcome in another person. So should parents have the right to edit the genes of their children in one view to avoid disease and in one view to just change cosmetical things like hair color or eye color? Or should the government have regulations there? So I don't think the government should have regulations on it, but I do think that scientists shouldn't be doing it yet because they don't have the knowledge, the full knowledge. So I think there is an issue of developing the knowledge. And so, for example, they're doing it, they're doing gene editing right now on on patients, um, you know, they, they, they're telling the patients the full risks that are involved, everything that's involved, unlike on adults, right? They, they, let's say if you, they're trying to cure certain diseases by editing the gene that causes the disease out. Uh, so they tell the, you know, as long as they have full disclosure, as long as the patient voluntarily agrees, and, and I think the science community, right, the scientists, uh, they do, they have panels, they have ethics panels that, that evaluate these things, whether they do a good job or not is a question, but they have these, and I think it's, it's right that they have it. These are complex issues. Uh, there was the example of a Chinese scientist, I think last two years ago, who actually edited the genes of embryos of twins. Uh, he edited out the gene that made them susceptible to AIDS because their parents had AIDS, something like that, I, I can't. And, and it worked, supposedly. Again, we don't know because it's in China, so, so we don't have full information. Uh, and he disappeared to jail. He was put in jail for doing that because the scientific community had not, basically had the, the rules among scientists, not by the government, were not to do it. And he did it in spite of that, and then the Chinese government stepped in and put him in jail for it. But um, so I, I, I don't think the government should be involved, but I do think scientists need to be very, very careful cautious about what they're doing and patients of course need to educate themselves and be very cautious about what they do and but yeah. but who's you know if you if you if you're changing the genes of an embryo and now you give the embryo individual right i mean it's very very dangerous to go that path you you know so i i don't think embryos have individual rights so you're not protecting the embryo so who are you protecting here if the government steps in so there's no clear rights violation but there is an issue of ethics, and I think the, 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 the doctors should know what they don't know and be very, very cautious in how they step forward. In the future, when they know all the things you said they don't know, 
then yeah, I, I, I think I think we're heading there with a, you know, and I think I think it, it'll be a good thing. Um, can I ask one short follow up? Sure. Um, you think it's moral for parents to um, edit, like for example, the hair color of their baby if it's if it would be safe if it's known that it's safe. Is it moral? I, you know, why are they doing it? It, it seems stupid. You know, it, it seems insignificant uh, and, 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 and whimsical. I don't know. I, you know, I think, I think it can be moral and it can be, not be moral. It depends on the motivations. Remember, morality relates to how rational the decision is. And if it's based on something irrational and seems like it would be irrational. I mean, there's so many things you would want to edit if I could edit. Hair color seems to be like, like, a marginal last thing that you would you would really consider. Okay, thank you. Yeah. My question is about art and ethics. Uh, it's, I, oh, my question is about art and ethics. Yeah. Uh, as, as we know, art is a form to show what we are inside to the outside. Uh, it is um, to show our own point of, of view of the, of the existence in a, in a print, in music, and uh, in a book. Uh, I wanted to know if it's possible uh, to change the course and to influence by art, by, for example, by romantic art, uh, in the code of values of a, in a society that is not, well, just not uh, avoiding our literature because Ayn Rand is. Out of what? I'm sorry. Literature. Literature, uh, okay. But for example, by, print, by printing. Uh, romantic, uh, by the romantic print, you may show an influence in people, in people's minds, uh, the values of a uh, um, rom, rom. So let me see if I get the question. I think you're asking, can you have a cultural impact yeah. through non-literary art? Sorry? Through non-literature, art that is not literature. Um, can you change the culture? Can you have an impact on the culture? Yeah. The, by uh, producing the art? Yes. If you can, um, yeah, because epistemology uh, influencing ethics and ethics in what you think it is important. But it can be changed uh, the course and be in the, in the reverse. Um, the, so the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, it depends what you mean by change the culture. So can it contribute to changing the culture? I think the answer is yes. Is it sufficient to change the culture? I think the answer is no. Um, and again, if you think historically, part of what the Renaissance is, it's a, it's a rediscovery of the ancient world. That included the artistic world way beyond literature, included sculpture, painting, architecture. And this gave them tremendous inspiration for what is possible in life, how you can face the world. But if that's all you had and you didn't have some thinkers in the Renaissance starting to think, you know, maybe the ideas we're being taught are wrong. And maybe Christianity, which teaches us to have a whole orientation to a world that doesn't exist, and we ignore the world around us, which is partly why all these things that existed have fallen, nobody knows about them. And so they haven't been destroyed, but nobody cares about them, no one digs them up. Part of what happens in the Renaissance is you have some people that, like, this is really interesting, it's way more interesting than Christianity and all this BS, and I'm gonna focus my life on this. And, so, and they're developing ideas. So 
uh, I think the view of art in terms of thinking of it as a cultural phenomenon that you get from Ayn Rand and, and in the philosophy is that it plays an important role in cultural progress and cultural degradation as well. But it's not sufficient by itself. And it's so it's one of the ways she puts it, it's the voice of philosophy. But if you didn't have the philosophy that it's giving voice to for good or evil, so you have you have medieval art that is is giving voice to a very different set of ideas and a view of reality. But that's in combination with all kinds of people preaching a new anti-Greek Roman philosophy. I mean, it's a religion, but it's playing the role of a philosophy. So it's it, it has a complex role that it's playing in a civilization. So it's a contributor, but not the sole cause. And it couldn't be the sole. Thank you. And there's a, there's a feedback mechanism. It feeds, it goes, so I think the philosophy makes it, um, it, it, it makes it in a sense easier for better ideas if, if the art is good art. So the good art makes it easier for people to explore. They become more interested. Wow, this vision of man, but our philosophy doesn't match this vision of man. So maybe we need to explore other philosophies. And then the more they explore, there's art that reflects back. Same in a downward spiral, right? So it, 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 there's a feedback mechanism. And, and there's a sense in which I suspect that art is necessary, that I don't think you, it could just be philosophy without art, that it would have to be art and philosophy together, and they would, they would feed off of each other and improve towards the kind of culture that we, 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 we want. And that's, that's history, right? I don't know that you could have an enlightenment without a artistic renaissance. But the artistic renaissance wasn't just art. As Ankar said, it was already the beginnings of the philosophy. And, and they fed off of each other, leading to the combination, which is the ideas of the enlightenment. Thank you so much. Could you explain why force makes thinking impossible? I think the expression by Rand is negates and paralyzes the mind. While other things that are difficult to endure, like strong psychological pressure or public shaming do not have that same effect. Um, so the, the easiest way to see it is to think what happens in your own life. Um, so when someone criticizes you, does it interfere with your ability to think? And I think the answer to that is no, and it doesn't matter if it's one person criticizing you, 10 people criticizing you, 100, 100 people criticizing you. When it's criticism, it leaves you free to think, to respond to it, to say no, that these criticisms are bogus, to look for other people who are, if, if the criticisms really are bogus, to, to find other people with whom you can convince. And so it leaves you free to think, it leaves other people free to think. It's a very different thing when someone introduces force, which is, as Yaron put it, it's a gun. And it is now, I mean, what it ultimately, I'm going to blow your brains out if you hold this idea, if you say something, if you respond to the criticism and so on. That is paralyzing. That is negating your judgment. The fact that someone disagrees with you, even if it's severely, even if it's a lot of people, does not stop you from being able to think, from being able to speak and so on as long as there's not a gun introduced behind the criticism. Um, and so that's the essential difference. And it, it's, if you think just about your own life, it's very different if someone's pointing a gun at you and saying, no, you're stupid in your arguments, 
are bad and so on. They're just totally different. And it, it, it is, so there's something to what you're saying in this sense, that you might feel paralyzed when people are criticizing. And, and a lot of people allow that paralysis to actually put, stop them. But that's a choice. It's a choice. You can overcome that, right? And you can say, and you should. It's not just you can, you should. You shouldn't let other people dictate your choices, dictate what, whether you think or don't think. I, you know, somebody yelled out when I said, what's the enemy of reason? Faith. Yeah, and, and there's a sense in which, yes, faith, if you accept faith, that limits your ability to think. But don't accept it. It's a choice. A gun is not a choice. Once somebody points a gun at you, choices are gone. You do what they tell you to do. Otherwise, your brains are blown out. So there's no, you know, so all the other things are not easy necessarily. It's not easy to overcome faith. It's not easy to overcome criticism sometimes. It's not easy to overcome emotion. Some people say emotion is the enemy of reason. There's a sense in which your emotions can paralyze you, but there's a choice there where you can overcome that. And, and that's, the, I think, the real difference is the, is, the, is the issue of, is it an issue of your choice, what you do with yourself, or, or is it beyond what is in your control? And the whole issue of force is, it's not in your control. Somebody else now has control. They have, the, they have the gun. Thank you. All right, so we have uh, two questions from the live stream, so I'll just ask both of them and then you can answer it. Uh, Dan Hua asks, how do you navigate your choices when self-interest conflicts with self-sacrifice? And Emil asks, and this is directed to Ankar, how do you oppose the malevolent universe premise? And do you have any essays or literature you recommend on this topic? I'll take the first one. Um, if I remember it. Um, do you want to repeat it? Self-interest always conflicts with self-sacrifice. That's the whole point. If it's in your self-interest, it's anti-sacrifice. And sacrifice is bad. It's evil. It's wrong. You want to avoid sacrifice. And, and, and you know, you, that's what it means to be self-interested. It means not to sacrifice. So the challenge that we live in, the, the world in which we live, is, is the, the concept of the virtue of sacrifice and is so ingrained in us that it's hard to shake. So let me be clear, we're against sacrifice, all sacrifice, always. It's, it, and sacrifice is not trade, sacrifice is not saving, sacrifice is not thinking long-term, sacrifice is giving up something more important for something less important, uh, or nothing at all. And, and we're against that, always, under all circumstances, so. Um, there's no navigating. There's no navigating. No sacrifice, zero one. And what was the second question? Was about Remember, yeah, yeah. I, so um, how do you oppose the malevolent universe premise? And do you have any essays or literature you recommend on this topic? So the malevolent universe premise isn't used in objectivism. It's a view of the world, of yourself, and of human beings in the world that value, pursuit, and achievement is impossible. That uh, you might... The, the, the kind of nicest view of the benevolent universe premise is, sorry, the malevolent universe premise is that, yeah, you can strive and pursue your own happiness. You'll never really achieve it. Or if you achieve it, it's fleeting and it will be so easily swept away 
by the forces in reality that make up the essence of reality. So it's a view about like what is essentially possible in human life. And the malevolent universe premise says what the essence of human life is, is it's suffering, resignation, loss, uh, and then eventually death. Um, and that, to go back to part of what I talked about in my talk, that comes largely, though not exclusively, but largely from religion. This is the view of life on this earth that it projects. And then it holds up a fantasy world that, oh, oh if you do, don't commit suicide. Like that seems the, what the response would be, that if life is just pain, suffering, so why don't I commit suicide? And there's a reason religion has such a prohibition on suicide. And if you think of the Christian religion, because it's the logical conclusion. If this is, oh no, don't you dare. We want you to suffer. We want you to be in pain. And then you're going to hit some fantasy world where this won't happen anymore. But it, it, that's part of, unfortunately, the motivation in the Christian religion. And the objectivist view is that this is, uh, I'll use my phrase again, 100% wrong. That it, the essence of human life is that life is possible. That achievement is possible. Values are possible. This is part of what, and that Ayn Rand was oriented towards the modern world, towards the future. What swept away any plausibility to the malevolent universe premise that life is death, suffering. Yeah, you'll have kids. Five of them will die in infancy or in ch when they're still children. So what swept that per whole perspective away is the Industrial Revolution, capitalism, and the prosperity that resulted from that. And it taught the, any thinking person that the malevolent universe premise is completely wrong. That if I put in the effort, the energy to think, and think in a philosophical way of what life requires, including that it requires freedom, it requires capitalism, it requires trade. And if I embrace all of that, and if my fellow men embrace all of that, we can achieve real progress and prosperity on this earth. Um, and that's the orientation in objectivism, that this is what's possible. So the, the idea of painting Ayn Rand as a negative, she's always criticizing things. She is an idealist who holds up a this worldly ideal that what is possible in life, if we embrace reason, value, self-interest, is not heaven on earth, but progress on earth. And real progress, real life, that extending both in quantity and quality. So it sweeps away this old perspective. And I'd say, so what to read in regard to this? The Atlas Shrugged is about this in a, in, a, in a kind of cultural way, and it's highlighting the importance of the Industrial Revolution. The Fountainhead is this issue at a very individual level, part of the difference, the, kind of the conflict. And the conflicts in Ayn Rand's novels are always between the good characters. The conflicts between Rourke and his love interest, Dominique, is this issue that she's on a malevolent universe premise, and she has to learn that that's wrong and what it means that it's wrong. Um, in terms of the nonfiction, uh, one interesting, one of my favorite essays of Ayn Rand is The Inexplicable Personal Alchemy. Uh, that's an essay in, in uh, it's in, what is it, uh, The New Left the anti-industrial revolution, or now it's return of the primitive. That's an interesting essay. Up on our site, I have an essay that's called Justice in a Benevolent Universe. 
And that's, it has some elements of what benevolent universe premise means and the importance of justice in the context of a benevolent universe. The benevolent universe doesn't mean everything's best in this best of all possible <coughs> worlds. It means values are possible if you work for them. And part of working for them is being on the side of justice. And would you add the metaphysical versus the man-made yeah. in philosophy who needs it? Um, so it seems to me that uh, an ant has different rights to a, a human baby and an, an adult human has different rights to, to a human baby. Is there some objective criteria that we can apply to humans, animals, or an alien if it were to visit Earth to see what rights, if any, it had? Uh, so basically, are there, does there exist objective criteria to assess what rights some entity has, if any? Yes. Um, so what are rights meant to protect? They're meant to protect reason. They're meant to protect the mind. They're meant to protect the ability to make choices. Well, so the entity has to have that. It has to have uh, the capacity to reason, to, to make choices. So if it's an animal, it has no rights because it has no capacity for reason, has no, uh, no ability to choose. It is, is not a being of, of free will. And therefore, it has no rights. Um, adults... Uh, adults do have rights. Um, children are an interesting category, right? Uh, it, because they have rights, but they don't have full, their full reasoning capacity. But they are individuals, and they are becoming, they are gaining that capacity. The, all the capacity is there. It's just a matter of, of gaining full use of it uh, as, they, as they develop. Um, and then aliens, if they show up, and they are, and they you know, assuming they show up, they must have reason, and they must have, be able to have chosen. So they'd have some rights, but uh, exactly how that all plays out, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, but yes, you assume that a being that can travel and come here, uh, you know, Keith can tell us about the physics of it, whether it's possible or not, um, uh, travel uh, is going to be a being of reason. Otherwise, how could they come? Uh, I think that's, that's definitely a, a safe assumption. Yeah. But is there some... Is there some more rigorous criteria we can apply? What does it mean to be to be reasonable, to be to be to be rational? Because it's it's not something we want to we want to uh, make a mistake with. Well, it means that you have the faculty of reason. So it doesn't mean that you you necessarily exercise that faculty. Again, you have you have the choice to think or not to think, right? Yeah. So the so the criterion is 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 it is it an organism that has the faculty of reason and is able to think for. What does it mean to have reason? It, I mean, so you, I think you have a wrong conception of what rigorous means here. Um, so capacity to reason is a capacity to be able to conceptualize, to go beyond a perceptual level, to go beyond just what you see in here, to get to abstractions, generalizations. But part of what it's going... What it means to say that man is the rational animal is that human beings survive by the acquisition of knowledge. And that means conceptual, abstract knowledge. It means science, math, um, history. And so all of this, no animal is capable of doing. You cannot do it at the perceptual level. And it's, this is what advances human life. We're the only species where knowledge grows. When uh, there's a form of learning in some other animals, 
But it's not like, oh yeah, now the deer in my yard are so much smarter than they, the deer 50 years ago. That doesn't happen, and yet it happens for human beings. So it's going to, this is how we survive. And the, the point Iran's making about aliens is they must, I mean, to be able to, that they can do more than we can do, and if it's technology, they're coming in spacecraft, it's like they have a tremendous amount of knowledge, and this is going then to the essence of how they live. And in that sense, there's a common bond that we live by the acquisition of knowledge and trade. And that's the context in which then you think of, yeah, I can deal with these people in the way I can't deal with a lion. So to that end, does that mean animals have have no rights or, or a different a different sort of rights or? No rights. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, so I would like to extend the argument of uh, Yaron from a, a speech ago about prisons that sadly there's an ideal we strive to as to have rational society, but sadly we still have some irrational actors that we need to put somewhere in prisons, for example. So my question is, to religious aspect of that, which I don't want to make comparison of prison to religion, but I'm going to, <laughs> that uh, if Ayn Rand would be alive today, when young generation, especially in Europe, but also in the US, lost touch in religion, but didn't become rational beings, really, and actually they became even more unstable religious being, following science, believing in science, or following specific identity policy, whatever, if she would be alive today, maybe she would see a religious structures that most societies had were somehow contaminating and making, giving structure to people that do not want to perceive and want, don't want to be rational beings, which most talks that I've seen in Rwanda, there's at least one person who always asks how to convince people. And I, I think most of us know people that just want to have faith and want to, that's their choice. Maybe they one day will change it and maybe one day will achieve full rational society. But until this happens, maybe a relationship that we have with religion that was in Ayn Rand times should be slightly different in modern times when we see that there is very few religious organizations nowadays that are strong in the West. But people didn't become rational, quite the opposite, and they are even more chaotic to predict what they will do next year, what will be the dogma next year, because it's changing every few months, right? So you're asking, can you convince people to follow reason who no. don't want to give up? I'm asking I'm about the role of He's asking, is, was religion a stabilizing force in human life, given that now we don't have religion and it seems to be even more unstable than it was when religion was a stable force? More irrational, almost. Oh, that, that it, that it's more, it was more rational than the new religions they're adopting today. And, you know. There's no, nothing more rational than the Trinity. God's three and one at the same time. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't make sense to you, but believe it. <laughs> yeah. And we'll kill you I if you don't that. believe it. I agree it. with that. So the difference yeah. is that it was harder for someone like the Catholic Church to gain totalitarian power in the way that, say, communism or Nazism gained. But her view of these were they're secularized religion. Yes. And they were only possible because of earlier religion. They would never have come on the scene absent Christianity. So what's the, what is there to say, like, they're a more destabilizing force. They're a product of Christianity, which would not have come, that there's no way you would get marks with, from each according to his ability, uh, from each according to his ability, to each but according like, with his we, need, we without have, Christianity. We have them now. Like, I, I, the origin, may, you may be right, I don't know. But like, we have them now, we now have identity politics, we have those things in the real life. So, how maybe like basically yeah, but to, but you don't to replace them with Christianity, 
with the modern tools of authoritarianism, the, uh, you have no clue how brutal and destructive and evil that could get. I mean, the most bloodiest war fought in Europe, the most bloodiest war, worse than communism and worse than fascism, was the 30-year war. Look at the percentage of the pop European population that died during the 30-year war. And what was it about? Catholics killing Protestants, Protestants killing Catholics, Protestants killing each other because they weren't quite the same Protestant, right? Because Protestants is this big umbrella. There's nothing more brutal. Yeah, I agree. So, so the solution to the irrationality of religion today is not another irrational religion, particularly given the modern tools of authoritarian. I mean, the Catholic Church would have loved to have totalitarian control like the communists did. They just didn't have the tools to do it. Now they have the tools to do it. Oh my God. I mean, and, and they're literally Catholics in America today on the right advocate for using the government to impose Catholicism on, on the people, Catholic morality on the people that can't impose faith on I'm them. not asking about politics to suggest suddenly go Catholic. No, but, that, but, but yeah. you're suggesting that we should be a little bit more sympathetic to religion because it was a stabilizing force. Was it? It, it, it was only a stabilizing force because it, it, was, it was during a, a time, a primitive I, time. I, I mean, in personal it? life, if I speak with Catholic, I know what, expect, what kind of irrationality I expect from them. At least I know how to deal with them, interact, which is way more than I have with modern irrationals. True. So, so there are all kinds of versions of irrationality out there, and we have to fight them all, and it's going to be hard. Okay. But I don't see Fair how it, ranking them and saying these irrational people a little bit better because I can predict them, not the better in terms of the life they lead. And, and look, let, 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 me, let me say this. This is going to be controversial, but what the hell? Nothing new. <laughs> People get over left-wing, nutty ideology. They really do. They grow out of it. All those college kids that rioted in the streets and demonstrated against my talk at Bristol and didn't let me speak and all that, they'll outgrow that. They'll still have wacky ideas. They'll still live rotten lives and so on. But they won't, they won't be quite as irrational when they're 40. It's just, if you talk to 40-year-olds, they're not as irrational as 20-year-olds in college. But once you get them Catholic, they're always Catholic. It sticks with them. They never outgrow it. So on that topic, which was mentioned before, and uh, the benevolent versus the malevolent universe premise with... Um, uh, with the topic of environmentalism, it seems that a lot of the window dressing is uh, related to that. You always hear, okay, we've got this technology, uh, maybe fossil fuels, and it's uh, really beneficial to us now, but just wait a few years, uh, everything's gonna break down, and you could probably say the same thing, uh, or hear the same thing about maybe biotechnologies or other things. Uh, so um, I understand that uh, we live and we solve problems by reason, and basically we, yeah, we conceptualize things and um, we understand things. But is there, is there anything else uh, you would re uh, respond to someone saying, how do we actually know that we're not going to invent a technology at some point, uh, maybe some new biotechnology or maybe some other technology which is going to have some side effect which will end up uh, Waking everything. I was wondering, is there some further principle which I'm overlooking, or is there? We might. <laughs> I, I mean, there is no. 
we might, and, and it's it's depending on on human reason to avoid that and, and to not do it. And it's why one of the reasons you want freedom is you want people to make choices and 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 not get technology you know technologies that might cause that into the hands of wrong of the wrong people and so on. But there's no there's no benevolence is not a um, it, it just says the human beings can achieve under the right circumstances. They can achieve these things. It's not a deterministic humanity will always achieve no matter what. Something could happen. There could be a nuclear war tomorrow. You know, Putin could launch 6,000 of his nukes and we're all wiped out. I mean, there's, there's nothing to say that won't happen. I mean, there's something to say that won't happen. That is, people don't want to commit suicide, but could. I would say that the argument, as you put it, is a smokescreen. So the idea that oh, we need to stop science, technology, progress, because we might invent something that is going to kill us, um, they're, they're not actually concerned with we might invent something. It's to cause fear in other people that, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe so, so I shouldn't engage in science research. And so on. The, like, that we're going to accidentally kill ourselves. Like, what do you think science and technology does? If we invent some microbe or virus that gets out, and so we can invent things to deal with it. That's what science and technology do. So it's much more, the kind of case Iran brought up is not an accident. It's you use technology to build nuclear bombs and send them all around the world to destroy people. That, yeah, that, I mean, science and technology can be used for good or evil. But the solution to it is not, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't have science and technology. It's to treat evil as evil. Um, and if, 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 I mean, there's no way Soviet Russia should have nuclear bombs. It should have been destroyed long ago. And so, and it was because that the, I mean, it's primarily the Americans in World War II give Soviet Russia aid and a pass. So, but it's more broadly the West. And then you have all kinds of Western scientists who are sympathetic to communism who'd give them the atomic secrets. So, that's the problem, not, oh, we're going to invent something that by accident is going to kill us. And there is a practical issue that has been brought up recently about gain-of-function research, right? This is where labs in certain places manipulate viruses in order to make them lethal, uh, and a virus like that can escape. And, you know, there's some argument that that's how we got COVID, that it, that it escaped from a Chinese lab. Uh, you know, that's not a crazy conspiracy. It, it, there's some evidence that that could have been where it came from. And therefore, we should ban all gain-of-function research, right, because it could. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is we need to be more careful. Uh, for example, it looks like they were doing, they were, use, they were working on COVID viruses in stage uh, level two or level three labs, which are not that secure. They should have been using level four labs. Uh, and you don't want it to be in China. <laughs> you know, there's a problem with any of this research happening in China. Um, and uh, but but to stop progress because of fear, uh, to stop science because of fear, is is a massive uh, mistake. And it's worse than a mistake. It, it's it, it's a it's a consequence of this malevolent view, and it's anti-human in the end. I guess it's the difference between saying, okay, let's set up the ideal conditions for flourishing and for marking progress versus demanding omniscience, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it underscores the need to, for, for the entire world to embrace rational ideas, 
right? I mean, the more our productive ability grows, the more we're able to do things on a global scale that could have these negative impacts, the more crucial it is that people are rational. Everybody's rational. So. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay. So. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my main kind of stick. So a lot of, a lot of things from objectivism I identify with and I see a lot of value in, but it doesn't seem like a system for dealing with other people. Like, dealing with other people entails sacrifice. Like, you have to compromise with people on some things, especially in government, okay? If you're a government official, you can't just self, like, selfishly follow after whatever, you know, you think you're, is to your benefit, right? Like, you could argue that, okay, you believe very strongly in objectivist values, and you have decided to become a public servant to defend these values of objectivism, correct? But, I mean, at some point... What if you see financial incentives to, you know, maybe twist the government in a way that will help you or maybe help your company or so forth? Um, so that was one thing. That was more on like the uh, kind of small scale level. On the international scale, if you have an objectivist government, um, so you say that the goal of an objectivist government is to protect people's rights and to ensure that they're free. How does that extend, though, to other countries? So why, why is it an objectivist government responsibility to make sure that some other country is being aggressive or not aggressive? Like, you kind of condoned Biden's statements on regime change. I mean, there's a reason there was outrage for that. I mean, this was coming from a country with a really long history of awful regime change policy. And I mean... Yeah, they didn't change enough regimes. Yeah, um, well. Just to be controversial, that's the awfulness. It's not... And they, and they didn't stand by the regime is that they changed and they did no one proud of the ones they did change. Um, but look, American foreign policy has been awful uh, for a variety of different reasons, but primarily because it hasn't been self-assertive enough, not because it's been too self-assertive. But I can't think of a single regime change that was made that shouldn't have been made. What about Iran? Like, the, I mean, they- Iraq was, I mean, the Iraqi people should have been on their knees thanking the United States for getting rid of a monster Called Saddam Hussein. No, 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 Iran, so in the 50s. Iran in the 50s. Yeah. Iran in the 50s was on the verge of becoming a communist nation aligned with the, with the, uh, with the Soviet Union. It, yes. It was I mean, democratically elected, though. It was stealing, it was, so what? It was stealing, um, it was stealing U.S. Uh, oil. It was, it was violating the property rights of American companies. Um, the United States was completely in its right to protect its own interest of its own citizens that were being violated. And in the context of a Cold War, uh, uh, it, within its right to make sure that Iran did not become an ally and a part of the Soviet Union. Um, so, uh, you know, the U.S. made a lot of mistakes in Iran after and during and before, so I'm not going to justify the particular action. But to blame anything in terms of what happened afterwards on the fact that they, uh, that they helped the British, it was actually a British operation, not an American operation, yep. uh, get rid of, of, uh, of the guy who was elected prime minister of, uh, uh, of Iran is, is ahistorical. Iran had problems and the problems were self-inflicted, not inflicted by the United States. But let me, I think the more important question is the first question. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's a misconception of interest, right? Uh, again, going back to rational self-interest rather than interest. 
so, um, you know, you take on a particular job and, and it's part of your career and this is what you're focused on. This is the central purpose of your life, according to objectivism, career. And you've got certain principles you're striving towards. And somebody drops a $100,000 bag next to you and you give it all up and go with a $100,000 bag. How is that in your interest, given what a central purpose is? I mean, and you can apply that to anything. You know, Steve Jobs works hard on an iPhone and somebody says, don't do it. Let, let, you know, give it to Samsung and I'll give you $10 billion. How about that? I mean, that's ridiculous that he would accept that and agree well, with it. So, so there's nothing unique about politics in that. That is, any profession could be subverted, theoretically, by somebody coming in and trying to, trying to seduce you away from the path that you're on. But if you're rational and if you're self-interested, you stick to what's rational and what's self-interested. You don't just do what is, uh, in the moment, seems appealing in anything in life. There's no, this is no different. Politics is no different in that sense. Uh, so you would pursue a career in politics if you were passionate about the protection of individual rights and this was something that was important to you and the career was interesting and you saw a career path and you could really immerse yourself in that and this was what was important for you. If you, want, if, if you wanted to make a lot of money, you wouldn't go into it. Just like teachers don't go into teaching for a lot of money. And it's not like if you dropped $100,000 now or a million dollars, into my lap right now, I'd start preaching Kantian. I mean, right, but, okay, but then who who's going to be in government? If it's not in anyone's rational interest to do it, then why would anyone? No, I didn't it? say it wasn't in anybody's rational interest. I said rational interest does not equal money. But you're assuming that, yeah, man, you're assuming people are going to have different rational interests. But that creates a, a not, like that creates an environment for conflicts, right? Um. Especially if government is involved. Yeah, let me say one thing on the issue of government. Your, your kind of view can't explain why government ever improved. Um, so, and th there is this kind of view in the libertarian movement that whatever government you get, it's all downhill from there. It's because what you have is it, it's people pursuing the, what they'll call their self-interest, but their narrow interest. So, and trying to get bribes and handouts from the government and so on. And it will be continuously going downhill. But the history of government in the West is not that we started at some ideal and went downhill forever. That's not, we, there's periods where you go massively up. And that what, and the enlightenment and the creation of the United States, but then a history of that for at least 75, 100 years is getting better government. And that's because you had people with a conception of what our interests are is a long-term, stable, rights-respecting, in some sense, government. Like, that's what we need. That's why I'm in politics. That's what I'm trying to do. The fact that you get abolition in the United States and a civil war and so on, like, that's a massive improvement in the conditions of government. And that if on this kind of view that everyone's motivated by um, what bribe and so on they'll get for the next week or the next month so cannot explain what has actually happened in history. So it is true. You can get that form of government and it's actually hard to get out of that form of government when you have, when you have that kind of massive corruption. So, but this is part of why the achievement of uh, even a halfway decent government is such an achievement that you go to other parts of the world and they can't imagine that you could have a politician who's not on the payroll of someone and so on, or judges and so on, 
But it's possible to have that, and it has happened in history to have that. So it's not, it's not endemic to human nature. It is what that particular culture and its ideas are about. And it's possible to have a culture where it's not the everybody. It's not you have to convince everybody. You have to convince a significant minority that this is right. And it's right to think about your long-term self-interest. It's right to think about the pursuit of happiness. And you put the chiselers on the defensive and they're marginalized. It's not that they all go out of existence but they don't wield the power that they wield today. No, thanks. Yeah, let me, I, I just want to say one thing about foreign policy quickly so you don't leave with the wrong impression. Uh, I believe that the United States foreign policy is too interventionist and too little interventionist at the same time, right? It's intervened in the wrong places and done it poorly, and it's not intervened in the right places, and again, if it, if it was going to intervene, it should have intervened properly. Uh, so it's, it's, it, I didn't want to leave the impression that I believe we should do regime change everywhere. But we should do regime change some places, and we should do it right. And if you do that, then the whole world, you know, attitude towards the United States changes, and you don't have to do it too often. So it's, it's uh, again, our conception of foreign policy as our conception of a lot of things is so different than anything else out there that it's sometimes hard to cope. Um, I, was trying, I wanted to pick your brains a bit about rational self-interest. So you say it's sort of an end goal, um, but surely what would the objectives for you then be on, um, on, on writing a will? Because if you were being rationally self-interested, you just would spend all the money and lie to your kids, and then you'd maximize your utility. Um, so I wonder what you thought about that. Well, are your kids of value to you? <laughs> sure, but I mean, if, you're, if you were only interested in your own self-interest, you wouldn't really care about what happens after your death. Well, that's the, that's the question is, is um, do you, I mean, if you, if you care about the other people in your life and you know that their life will continue after yours is over, why wouldn't you want to do what you can to, you know, continue to support the value of their life after you're gone? So I challenge the premise of the question. But surely that doesn't seem like self-interest. That's sort of like, it's an interest that's beyond you, and certainly in, in any scope, because it's, it's, it doesn't concern you benefiting. Well, the thing is, you write your will while you're alive. <laughs> so, you know, and, 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 and while you're alive, you value the people that you value. And then once you're gone, you're, doesn't matter, you, you know, you, you, can't, you, don't, you can't change your mind. You don't do anything about it, so... I don't know, maybe you're going to I think part of the premise of the question is the conception of self-interest that is not the conception in objectivism. So you put it in sort of, you, you uh, maximize your utility. That is not what objectivism means by self-interest. It means you pursue and achieve your value. It is not measured by some momentary pleasure that you get or the kind of conceptions of utility that you get both from utilitarianism and philosophy, and if you're coming from more an economic background, the way that they think of utility, it is not what objectivism means by the pursuit of value or the pursuit of happiness. So you, you could ask the kind of question that you're asking for many more values than just a will and your children. Shouldn't um, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, why are they pouring so much into figuring out how to get to Mars and so on? They might not even be alive when this happens and so on. Why shouldn't they be on the beach 
drinking pina coladas because that's what maximizes their utility. It's not the way that they think about their values or their life and their right to think about it, that my life is about achievements um, and creating real values. And yeah, that will go on into the future and I hope it goes on into the future. It's true they're not living for the future, but they're interested in their friends and companies and family enduring into the future and being able to pursue their values and so on. And that's rational for them to think of that in their lifetime. And so, so their conception of value is not um, the, the kind of, I think, the way that you're thinking about utility maximization. It's not their conception. It's not objectivism's conception. I don't think it's the right conception. Like. All right. Two questions from uh, Jonathan Honig. Question one, uh, what should Norway do with its oil if not a sovereign wealth fund? And the second question is, can you speak on Rand's view of nationalism, given that you're in Europe? What should Norway do with it? Well, privatize. Um, it, it should privatize it. It should sell off the, uh, the ocean, uh, the sections of the ocean under which uh, the oil is available, or sell off the mineral rights, or however you want to do it. I mean, theoretically, you give it away. You shouldn't even sell it because it's not theirs to begin with. But they should define property rights over those sections of the ocean. It's not necessarily easy to do, but I think in the case of oil, you can do it and, 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 and privatize the mineral rights and, that's, uh, and, and sell it the highest bidder. Um, Rand's conception of nationalism. I mean, Rand uses nationalism in a, in, at least in one place in a positive sense. Um, and, and that places when, when she's talking about na your, the national self-interest, American national self-interest. So she uses nationalism to reflect the, the, the self-interest of a country in protecting the individual rights of its own people, right, in, in, in protecting the individual rights. She doesn't use nationalism in a positive sense when she talks about placing the nation above the individual, quite the contrary. That's her negative view of nationalism. She views that as a negative. <clears throat> but in the context of protecting the rights of individuals, a nation should, or the leaders of a nation should project strength and confidence and, and be uncompromising in protecting the individual rights of their people. In that sense, she, she, she mentions nationalism. Um, but in, in the European sense of nationalism, which is kind of a, a, a has been uh, often a, a tribal sense, a sense of my people, we need to, to be able to control our borders and we all need to be able to look alike and we all need to be able to, I don't know, have the same quote culture, whatever the hell that means. Um, she wrote extensively about that. I mean, the, 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 her essay on balkanization is, and some of you are from the Balkans, so you'll appreciate it, um, is, uh, is an important essay. I think it's a, a very relevant to Europe today, very relevant to the world today. Um, it, this, this idea of, of uh, little countries based on little languages and different languages and, and uh, you know, I'm a Macedonian versus I'm a Serb or I'm a this or I'm a that. She was very much against that kind of tribalism, that collectivism, that idea that you place some kind of collective identity above the individual and that the individual is a sacrificial lamb to that collective identity. And, and unfortunately, that is something that, um, that Europe has embraced, particularly is, is embraced forever, you know, for at least the last 200 years, but more so, right, I think, I think recently. Um, and, uh, and that you Brits, all the Brits here, you know, 
I don't know if you're having second thoughts about Brexit, but if you're not, you should be. Um, because you got all the downsides of Brexit without any of the upside, as far as I can tell. So uh, Onkar talked about how uh, in conventional morality you have a choice between sadism and masochism, and masochism has become the norm. Is there any particular reason why it, it wasn't the sadism who has become instead of uh, the more masochistic? For example, from Fountainhead, you have the character of Gail Wynand, who is pretty much someone who saw this conventional morality and said, I don't want that. And he picked the only other choice. And at least seemingly, it seems more practical. So is there any reason why that didn't become the norm? Well, the norm, to the extent that human life develops, is to um, be rational and productive and to bear the guilt for that. So the norm is not, um, uh, if you're taking Ayn Rand's characters, is not whining, but it's Hank Reardon. The, he, he, in a sense, knows that what he's doing is immoral. and so He feels guilt and some shame for that, but also knows like, this is the only thing that makes sense, and if I'm at all concerned with life, this is what I need to do, and I need to produce, and I need to work, and I need to be a responsible, independent person, and so on. And yeah, I'll bear the guilt for that. I don't really understand why I'm bearing guilt for it. I don't have an alternative to that. That's the norm. Wynan's solution is not a solution, and is, is a real evil element in his character. And there is an element of sadism, in his character, and it's very evil that he breaks people. And the idea that any decent person can do that to another person is, um, yeah, there's a reason why that's not the alternative that's embraced, that you can, it's, yeah, um, it doesn't really make sense for me to give up, to sacrifice, to surrender. But at least I'm not plunging the knife into people and so on. And it, it, like that, if those are your two alternatives, I think any decent person will take, yeah, I'll take masochism over sadism. And it's, it's a real flaw in someone if they're choosing the other alternative. But as I say, what the norm for the decent person is I can't live with any of these. And so the norm is for a person to think I can't live with morality and I can't live without it. And I got no idea what to do. Um, and, it, and altruism counts on this. The altruism counts on that there's going to continue to be producers. They don't actually want everyone to be a Mother Teresa. They, Mother Teresa and all of them would go out of existence if everybody was like that. They want people like Hank Greer. They want people like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates to produce, to produce massively, and then give it away to the people who haven't produced. Because that's how they're going to stay alive. Um, so the... the it's, it's a more complicated phenomenon than just masochism or sadism, if you're thinking of like, what are the alternatives. But in terms of sort of explicitly what your choice is, they're told, these are your two choices. I'm not going to be a sadist, so I guess I have to be a masochist. Okay, and, thank and, you. And if you think culturally, from a cultural perspective, what a culture of sadists looks like, it, it, it's, uns, you know, it's, it's death and destruction. It's what pre-civilization looks like. It's warring tribes raping and pillaging, and, and we've lived that, right? We have lived under, and in, in, in part of the sad thing about civilization has turned into, into, into these masochists. I, I mean, they don't 
that's not the goal, but that's what they've adopted because they've rejected, they've at least rejected the, the, you know, the violence that is necessary under, sad, under sadism. Of course, we're offering an alternative to both of them. And, and, and to some extent, civilization couldn't have got to this point without people at least implicitly knowing there's an alternative to it and, and, and living as if there was an alternative, even if they can't completely get rid of that guilt that, that uh, bad religion and bad philosophy uh, embed them. Thank you. Okay, I'll make it quick. Um, so if a free nation is in war with a dictatorial nation, um, can the government of the free nation forbid trade with the, with the attacking nation? And wouldn't that be a violation of individual rights of people that want to trade with that nation? Yes and no. Uh, yes. I mean, it would be absurd to trade with a country you're at war with. Because trade is win-win, and you don't want the country you're at war with to win, right? You're trying to destroy them. You don't go to war like a gentleman duel, right? War means destruction. So you don't, on the one hand, want to destroy them. On the other hand, you're going to allow them to benefit. So, so it, it, it's interesting because, just as a side, the, the, the Catholic conception Of, of, um, of trade used to be uh, that, of um, money lending used to be that the party that borrows money um, is a, is, it loses. So it wasn't perceived as a win-win. So, so the Christians used to lend money to the, to the Muslims as they were fighting them because they thought that would hamper the, the Ottomans <laughs> because it was, a, it was a net loss, right? Debt was a net loss. And, you know, but, but so no, so you absolutely do ban trade. But, um, you know, you're doing it in it by you're doing it to protect the individual rights of your citizens. That's why you're banning the trade. And if there were if citizens who are confused about that, then they're confused about it. But they don't have a right to endanger everybody else in the country by trading with somebody who is clearly an enemy of that country. So uh, and at war with that country, and therefore inflicting damage. So they don't have a right to endanger everybody else through that trade. And it should be illegal. For these kinds of questions, it's often helpful to think, what's the parallel in the domestic situation? There's not always a parallel, but there often is. In this case, it's if someone comes up to me, look, I need to rob a bank. Can you sell me some machine guns and a getaway car? Because I don't have either. And you can't say, yeah, well, that's just a trade. You're an accessory to the crime. And in this case, the people who then are trading with a nation that's trying to kill you are an accessory to them trying to kill you. And that for that reason, they're banned. I think also there's a premise to the question that, that, you know, there's the governments and the citizens, and they have nothing to do with each other. Citizens just go on with their ordinary life, and it's the government who's waging wars or defending the country. I mean, Ayn Rand had a totally different view of that. Um, part of our argument is part of the whole reason to get involved with politics is because you as a citizen are partly responsible for the government you have. And if it's engaging in, you know, initiating wars and this sort of thing, that's partly on you. And that's why it's so important to, you know, you know make sure that we have the kind of uh, politicians and government that is going to be rights respecting. And, and so you can't just say, well, I have nothing to do with the war. I just want to go ahead and trade. Um, it just doesn't work like that. Well, yes, I took the, the example of the war to, to make it like clear. In this case, 
uh, does object uh, objectivism sanction the government stepping in and, and forbidding certain individuals to make trade? But so I guess in in, an, in objectivist society, these rules would be objectively defined in what what cases the government can step in in, in those situations. Yeah. So one of the advantages of not having a draft, having a voluntary army, and having in a sense voluntary taxation, if you want to call it that, is that government can that citizens can more easily withdraw their sanction from a government if the government is acting against their interests. So we're out of time. So more Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.